0: This morning uh, I would like to uh, do something a little bit different, something that uh, is not uh, ordinary for me in my uh, preaching style. And so we're going to begin this morning by looking at the PowerPoint, uh, and I want to introduce you to a particular man in history by way of a short biography uh, before we go into a specific message that will take us through for possibly the rest of the month Uh, My intention initially was not that it would go for the rest of the month, but you all know me pretty well. Once I begin on a topic, there's much more to it than I initially anticipated, and uh, I'm particularly excited by uh, what we're looking at uh, this morning. So let me uh, introduce you to a man by the name of Charles Wesley. Many of you would know that name, the brother of John, and uh, there's uh, a picture of him. And uh, if you look up there, I'm going to read from here. It says, Charles Wesley lived from 1707 to 1788 and was one of the greatest hymn writers in the English language. Born into the home of a pastor, Charles grew up knowing all the stories of the Bible. But it was not until May 21st, 1738, that he realized that his previous religious commitments lacked the essential element of simple faith in Christ. At the time of his conversion, he read Psalm 40 and verse 3, which says, He hath put a new song in my mouth. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. The day after his conversion, Charles wrote the famous hymn. The day after his conversion, don't miss that, he wrote the famous hymn, And Can It Be. One of the stanzas was written as a personal testimony of his salvation. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Imagine writing that the day after your salvation. Whew. Charles was uh, educated at Westminster School and entered Christ Church at Oxford at the time when his older brother John was leaving to help in his father's church. At Oxford, Charles organised a holy club, where members met each evening to read the Bible and pray. Charles Wesley and his friends sought a disciplined method of spiritual improvement. Some ridiculed this group and called them Methodists for their methodical ways. John later returned to Oxford and became the leader of the holy club Charles had organised. And Can It Be? was the first of 6,500 hymns that Charles Wesley wrote. Just contemplate that for just a moment. 6,500. He, like Martin Luther, believed hymns were a means of teaching theology. He composed an average of three hymns a week. They covered each every area of theology as well as every season of the year. It was this faithful servant of the Lord who, when approaching the Christmas period and wanting to instruct the people in theology, wrote the well-known carol we know as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This rich theology-filled song was composed in 1739 and originally titled, Hymn for Christmas Day. In its original form, the chorus and opening couplet read, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. This old fashioned word welkin meant vault of heaven or the skies. Wesley's intention was to have the worshipper consider the angelic host which proclaimed the Lord's birth. Today we might say, Listen how the skies of heaven ring. It was 1758 that Wesley's good friend George Whitfield, the evangelist, updated the lyrics, and most, not- most notably that first couplet to hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. In some ways, it seems a shame that Whitfield altered the lyrics because in doing so, he added the non-biblical account of the angels singing on that occasion, which the scripture doesn't say. And it was William H. Cummings who then borrowed a slice of Felix Mendelssohn's 1840 cantata to construct the upbeat carol we know today. Interestingly, Mendelssohn was a Messianic Jew and how fitting that his music should accompany the grand hymn which speaks of Jesus as the Messiah. Charles Wesley was a hymn writer to the end. As he lay dying in March 1788, quite worn out with toil in his master's service, he wrote the following lines. In age and feebleness extreme, who shall a helpless worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, Strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity? (laughs) Wesley's hymn, Hark, How the Welkin Rings, is without doubt now my favourite carol. And the more I meditate upon the lyrics, the more glorious it becomes. In preparation for this Christmas period, I would like to preach a two-part, which may turn into four-part, message... Based upon this hymn. My intention today is to free you from the tendency of putting your mind into neutral when it comes to this Christmas period. In other words, my prayer is that this message and those that ensue would jolt you out of ritualistic carol singing Tree decorating, present wrapping, merriment focused traditions into a renewed understanding and appreciation of the greatest message in all the world God became man. I thought about how I might achieve this goal. I considered reading the Christmas story and performing an in depth exegesis, as I often do, of a text. I considered preparing some object lessons, as you've seen me do with the children in order to keep your attention and make it memorable. I even considered organising a skit with some of the young people together to do a play up the front so that you would just lose sight of uh, what we ordinarily would do and make it somewhat memorable. And I can see the young people going, thank you, Lord, for not making him do that. (laughs) I saw that. And as I pondered the options... And as I was praying and as I was considering the various uh, ways of communicating truth and the study that I'd done, it became very clear to me that Wesley's hymn was the perfect foundation for our time together today and next week and however long it might take. And it is my prayer that this largely misunderstood and commercially abused hymn, which carries theological weight beyond our comprehension, would come alive for us today. Furthermore, it is my hope that when you walk through the shopping centers over this next week, when you hear this song played over the radio station, that you would pause for a moment, knowing what you will hear in a moment, and worship the Lord afresh, knowing what Wesley meant and what was intended by the truth found in this great song. And so, in moving forward this morning, I would have us look at Hark. The hymn, part one, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for a time where we can come together around your word, around the words of a Christian believer, a brother who has wonderfully put things together so that we can uh, understand them uh, in a poetic form, that we can appreciate them, that we can offer praise before you using those words. And Lord, we, uh, we're we not wanting to replace the scriptures in any way, and we will spend much time looking into them. But we're thankful for this foundational hymn that uh, puts forward for us a great theological discourse for our consideration this morning. Help us, we pray. May it be fruitful and beneficial, uplifting, convicting, challenging and changing for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Very, very important to me this morning that you understand that what we are not doing is replacing the scriptural teaching with uh, looking at a hymn. And that's not what we're doing at all. What we are doing is I have found a hymn that I think has wonderfully encapsulated and captured some truths that we are going to back up fully and bolster with the scripture this morning. What I'd like us to do first and foremost, if I can, and maybe uh, Jessica, if you could do this for me, is I'll just get you to hand out that. Well, one two, each person, I think we'll be fine. As that gets handed out, I'll just get myself organised here. Thank you. So it's uh, my hope that this, this little piece of paper will be helpful to you in the studying of the original... Words that were written uh, by Charles Wesley. You'll note on this piece of paper that we have words by Charles Wesley and then by George Whitfield. They're not included on this page, but I wanted to uh, give due recognition to him. Then the music is by Felix Mendelssohn and adapted by William Cummings. Uh, the lyrics below were written entirely by Charles Wesley. Since then, there have been numerous alterations made to bring this carol into its modern day form as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. For the purpose of our study, we'll be looking at this hymn in its original form and that's there for you to write notes on, for you to circle, to highlight, whatever you need to do in order to get a picture of what's being said. And I will be going through this line by line and even at times word by word. So firstly, I would like you to see in this hymn, the first point, which is this, the call to pause, to listen and to see. The call to pause, listen, and see. Note what Wesley has written here. Hark how all the welkin rings. Glory to the King of Kings. The very first word in this precious hymn is now considered archaic. In fact, there are whole blogs on the internet about all the archaic words in the carols. And this was nearly at the top of the list. The word hark is always an exclamation and a call to attention. Hark, listen, hearken to is where we get the word hark from. Its meaning relates to the senses. Primarily it refers to listening, which is where we derive that word "hearken." However, importantly for us to note this morning, it is not exclusively auditory. This word is also used in reference to beholding with the eyes. It's even used of smell in history. But it is most certainly used of calling the mind to attention. Hark is always the call to mental engagement. What a great way to start, Wesley. Listen, get your mind in gear, Christian, as you begin this song of worship. And is it not true, would you agree, church, is it not true that at this time of year, more than perhaps any other in all of the calendar, we need a call to mental engagement? You say, why is that? Well, instead of all this superficial, tinsel-focused Christmas concept that is not even found in the scripture, we need to have a call to employ the faculties of our mind and our heart towards truth. I'm not saying those other things are wrong, but what I'm saying is they are very distracting from truth. And so this is a wonderful call to stop, to listen, and to hear the truth. Wesley, I think, is a little bit like a pedestrian crossing here where we read the sign, stop, look, listen and think. That's what he wants us to do. Stop where you are, what you're doing. Look, listen and think about what I have to say and what the scripture has to say. I wonder, as by way of, I guess, an introduction for us this morning on this very word, have you stopped yet? Have you actually stopped yet? Because the tendency is just to, to run and run and run through this season of time. And more than any other time, I would suggest, we run without even thinking. We're organising this and we're wrapping that and we're doing this and that and so forth. And it is probably high time to hark and stop and think about our Lord. Let us not lose sight Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you being swept away by the craziness and the busyness of the season? Have you paused to consider the reality of Christ's first coming? Or have you been so otherwise engaged that it has not even been a thought? What is it exactly in its first instance, is it that Wesley wants us to listen and see and think about? Well, point number two. The first is the call to cause, listen and see. But secondly, the vault of heaven opened. The vault of heaven opened. So I don't see that anywhere in Wesley's a text here of the music. Where is that? Notice this first line. Hark how all the welkin rings. Glory to... The King of Kings. I have so appreciated studying this original song or poem. See, our modern version of this carol does not contain the words originally written by Wesley. Whitfield altered them, and I believe, and I don't mean to be down on Whitfield, I appreciate so much of his ministry, but I don't think he made it better. I think he made it worse. And I think the original is so much more powerful. Here we are confronted with another archaic word, this word welkin. Not something you're going to hear people down the street say very often. You'll hear welcome, not to be confused with welkin, welkin. This term has been reduced to virtual extinction. And it literally means the sky. It means clouds or the heavens. But when you take a Collins Dictionary, and when you take some of the other uh, conservative and trustworthy sources around this time, Welkin is most often a synonym of the phrase, the vault of heaven. The vault of heaven. A term used poetically. How fitting is this description? He says, stop, listen, think, hear, no, behold, the vault of heaven ringing. You say, what, what is that all about? Wesley wanted the worshipper to metaphorically gaze into the night sky and perceive the angelic host as they announced the good news to the frightened shepherds. You say, where is that? Look with me in Luke chapter 2. And I want to read this portion to give us an idea of what exactly we are speaking of here. Luke chapter 2, we were there earlier and we're going to continue reading from verse number 8 if you would follow along. And if it is at all possible to lose the ritualistic concept of reading this at Christmas time, etc. Do that and let me encourage you to put yourself in the place of the shepherds on that night. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. By the way, just imagine, we're just talking about one angel now, just one to start with. One angel came, and what a precious privilege that one angel had to first of all come to these shepherds and then be joined by a host, but began with one angel. Interesting, this is, this is amazing. And they were filled with great fear, as I think you would be. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The vault of heaven opened. An angel at first with the glory of God surrounding that angel pronounces the birth, the good tidings of Jesus Christ. And then suddenly a multitude of the heavenly host appear. I mean, just, just imagine, imagine you're a shepherd on a dark night watching over your sheep and just suddenly this happens. And I don't know, I don't think the scripture gives us a huge amount of information about the subject of angelology. What we know is limited, but we do know one thing is that they are bright and shining seraphim, cherubim. And when they come into a place, that place doesn't stay the same. It would have been an amazing, an amazing scene. The vault of heaven opened and from it sprang forth these glorious messengers whose voices rang throughout the valley. Glory to God in the highest. What a sight. What a scene. What a sound. Look and listen as the heavens ring. What a time of worship was had in the hilly regions and outskirts of Bethlehem that night. Imagine being a shepherd in the field. And by the way, what other person's birth? in all of history, was accompanied by a host of the heavenly multitudes. There was, this was no ordinary birth. This was no ordinary child. This was no ordinary announcement. Put yourself in the picture here, and that's exactly what Wesley wants us to see. Hark how all the welkin, the vault of heaven, the skies ring. Amazing. And then I want you to see, thirdly, the glorious proclamations. Look at what Wesley has to say here in this second line before you. Glory to the King of Kings, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. In this portion of the poem, Wesley mingles great theological truth from all parts of the scripture to bring it together here. Some is directly from the passage we've just read, Others are a compilation of truths about the Lord Jesus found in the scriptures. But I see here three clear proclamations that Wesley would have us as the worshipper understand. Proclamation number one is the proclamation of praise. Look at what it says. Glory to the King of Kings. I don't know. I would like to ask, and I will one day, I'm sure, when I get to heaven, say to Wesley, What exactly were you thinking? Were you thinking that it was glory to God in the highest in verse 14 of our text? Or perhaps, as I see it, maybe it was 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15 that says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Maybe that's what Wesley had in mind. Praise be to him. Or maybe Wesley was going to the end of the book, to Revelation, looking into the future, where he reads in chapter 19, verse 16, that Jesus comes riding on a white horse and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a new name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whatever the case, the proclamation here is praise be to the King of Kings. He wants the believer to see. Not simply an innocent babe in a manger, but a royal king who is greater than any other. And the one who deserves all praise, glory, veneration and adoration. It's not unlike the Magi, the wise men from the East who sought a king that was greater than Herod. They went to uh, Jerusalem thinking that's where he would be. But in actual fact, they're told it's Bethlehem Ephratah, as the prophet said. And so they make their way down there. They weren't interested in worshipping Herod. There was a different king, a greater king, a new king. And the heavens had revealed the reality of this as they were star gazing. Look with me in Matthew chapter 2, please. Matthew chapter 2. Beginning in verse number 1. Familiar portions, I know, but let's look at them with fresh eyes. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was troubled that these men had not come to worship him and that there was a new king on the horizon. He was troubled in all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, Does this attitude of worship, does this attitude of praise for Jesus Christ mark your life too? In the midst of what is called the silly season, are you preoccupied with worship of Christ? It is so easy to get distracted, particularly at this time of year. But may I compel you to take the time now to examine your own heart and whether or not it echoes this first proclamation of praise. But then secondly, I'd like you to see, it, see it's not just a proclamation of praise, but it's also a proclamation of peace. Look at what Wesley writes here. Glory to the King of Kings, peace on earth. This is taken directly from Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, where the angels in united chorus say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Very important that we understand this. The Jews got this wrong and many people in history have got this wrong. This proclamation of peace on earth was not the promise to eradicate all wars and conflict. That was not why the Lord Jesus came. That was not his purpose. The peace that he is speaking of is not a physical conflict based peace where that is all eradicated. That's not what he's speaking of at all. It is the promise of spiritual peace that comes between a sinful man and a holy God by means of Jesus Christ. In other words, the proclamation of peace was a promise fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of this young baby in a manger who would grow up to die. Isaiah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, foretold the coming of the Messiah and described him this way. The wonderful counsellor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. The coming of this king would be marked by peace on earth, not physical. That'll happen at the second coming. This is marked by spiritual peace. He will do a work that none other can do, bringing reconciliation and peace. Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 1, therefore we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was Peter who wrote, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the peace that we speak of. This newborn baby was to usher in the kingdom of God, which would be marked by peace. Again the apostle Paul writes the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and of peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit Romans 14:17 If you have trusted this morning if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior you have already experienced the peace that he brings Despite the fiercest storms, and some of you I know at this moment in time are going through fierce storms. The tempests are hard and it is waging warfare against your vessel and it's a difficult time. And yet you can be content in the chaos knowing of the assurance of his presence that he is with you and he is in you and he is our peace. You know that to be true. What a privilege it is to know this proclamation of peace personally. Adverse afflictions, difficult, human, humanly un, unable to overcome them, we have the peace of God. And it was Paul who said this: "We do not lose heart. though our outer self is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day." By day, and that comes because of the peace that God gives. And then the third proclamation, and this proclamation I love so much, it's a foundational truth of the gospel. It's the proclamation of pardon, the proclamation of praise, the proclamation of peace, and then the proclamation of pardon. What does he say here? He says, God and sinners reconciled. Mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. For those who may not be familiar with it, the word mercy carries the connotation of withholding what is deserved. Withholding the due wrath and anger and penalty and punishment that ought to be ours. But it is withheld and poured out in its fullness upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute. God has pardoned us, if you're a believer this morning, not because we are worthy. Not because we reach some attainment or set of standards or moral obligations, but because his perfect son grew up from the manger to shed his blood to appease the righteous wrath of God on our behalf. You know what I love? What I love about what Wesley has to say here is that he is saying that God is in the business of reconciliation. That's what God does. God delights to reconcile sinners. He formulated a plan whereby the lost and dead sinner can be brought to life and reconciled with his creator. And it is this glorious message that my brother Charles Wesley is having us understand and glory in. That's what he wants us to see, that peace on earth, mercy on God and sinners can be reconciled. Please note this, pay attention to this. The message of Christmas is not a baby in a manger. It is the God-man born to die for you. It is not about the Christmas tree. It's about Golgotha's tree. It is not about the dark night in Bethlehem. It's about the dark day on Calvary. It is not about the cattle in the stall. It's about the Lamb of God for sinners slain. It is not about a fat man who gives us presents. But about the Creator who gives us life and the light of life. That is the purpose that's why he came that's what he said i will do i have come to seek and to save that which is lost this is the proclamation of pardon and then point number 4 if you're keeping track those other 3 were subpoints this is point number 4 it's the call to join the chorus This is verse number two. Look at what the verse says. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Universal nature say, Christ the Lord is born today. Charles Wesley is not only known as a great hymn writer, but also a great evangelist. He and his brothers spent all of their life preaching the gospel outside, inside, wherever they could go. They would get on their horses and they would go and preach the gospel to anybody who would listen and even to those who wouldn't. And they were known for that. In fact, I hope I'm quoting this right. I can't remember if it's John or Charles Wesley, but there was a day... These are not in my notes, so I'll have to confirm that it's true next week. But there was a day when either John or Charles Wesley was uh, getting ready to go on the horse throughout the day. This is in the afternoon. And uh, he had had absolutely no opposition in that day to the gospel. And so he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, today I've had no affliction. I've had no opposition to the gospel. Please forgive me. I've not done enough. As he finished his prayer and got off his knees, a farmer who hated the Wesleys, threw a brick and narrowly scraped his nose. He got back down on his knees and he says, thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer. Got on the horse and kept preaching. This is the evangelist. And what we see here, joyful all you nations rise, is the call to join the chorus. It's the evangelistic heart of this preacher. And he says, I want the world, I want all people to know this truth and join in the chorus with the angels. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Proclamation of pardon. The call begins with joy. Joyful. You see, I thought for a while that what I might do for these next two Sundays was preach on two subjects which were peace and joy, the two most misused words in this December period. People don't know what peace is and people don't know what joy is. And here we have this joyful, all ye nations rise. What does he mean by Joy. What does Wesley mean by joy? Well, knowing what I know of him and what I have read of him and the studies that I have done into his life and biography, I believe he understood true joy. And that true joy comes from a changed heart. See, joy is not happiness, that is completely different. You may be happy because you got a promotion. You may be happy because you got a new car. You may be happy because things are going well in your family or your finances are looking healthy. That is not joy. Joy is that firm, resolute, inward attribute that is connected with having peace with God. And so Wesley says, joyful all the nations rise. Once you nations see who this is, you will respond with great joy and you will rise. And was that not true of you? When first you understood who Jesus is, when first you understood pardon from sin and peace within, were you not filled with overwhelming, superfluous joy that came from the Spirit of God? I know I was. And I know that I still am today. And though my joy goes in and out as I walk in the Spirit, it's always there. It's never gone. It's never lost. It's just a decision on my part. Will I walk in that joy? The joy of the Lord. True and lasting joy is found in Christ alone. You see, the wise men, the Bible says, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they located the king of the Jews. The angels promised the shepherds that good news of great joy will be for all people. Later on, when Jesus ascends into heaven before the disciples, the Bible tells us in Luke twenty-four fifty-two that the disciples worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. When we get to the book of Acts, we find that Philip, having preached in Samaria, the response was that there was much joy in the city. And the Apostle Peter, I think, summarizes this best for us today. He says, 1 Peter 1 verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Is that your take? Is that your life? Is your life marked by a joy that comes from Jesus Christ, inexpressible and filled with glory? Wherever Jesus went or the message of his gospel was proclaimed and believed, joy was always the result. Today, the call is to experience true joy. And I don't want to... Be negligent in my duty as a minister of the gospel this morning to confront you collectively and personally about your need to join with those who are filled with joy by trusting Christ. There are those, no doubt, in this room who are void of that joy. There are those in this room who are looking for hope, who are looking for peace, who are looking for an answer to life's questions and are wondering and are searching and are looking in all the wrong places for joy. And you need to understand that joy is not found in the church. It's not found in getting together. Joy is found only in Jesus Christ. And then when we come together, there is great joy because the Lord Jesus is in you and is in me. And we come together as one unified body of believers. And there is exceeding great joy in our midst. But that joy and that peace and that contentment is found in but one person, Jesus Christ. Oh, friend, do not leave today having not put this right with him. The answer to all of life's purpose and question is Jesus Christ. And it's only those who've trusted Christ that can join in this chorus. It's not enough to know the Christmas story. God doesn't care about that. It's not enough to have a nice nativity scene on your mantelpiece at home. That is irrelevant. It is only the converted, the truly saved, who proclaim that Christ the Lord is born today. I had no idea exactly where we would uh, finish today. I did enough to make sure that, you know, I could keep you going for three or four hours. And I'm not going to do that. But I think I would like to, uh, if I'm sensitive to the Spirit's leading now, do one more point. And uh, it jumps right in the middle of a verse, which is not ideal, but I think it's critical for us to finish on this note, which is point number five, the beginning of verse three here. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ, the word Christ. This is the word for Messiah. This is the word for the deliverer, the one who is coming, the promised one of Isaiah 53 of Genesis 3:15, of all these other portions of Scripture, Psalm 22 and Messianic prophecies all throughout the Old Testament, this is Christ, the Messiah. The Jews would say he is the Hamashiach, the anointed one, the prophet, the priest and the king. This is the one that we begin with in this verse. Christ by highest heaven adored. Before we delve too much deeper into this and we'll look some more at it next week. Let me show you where this begins. The adoration Begins with the Father's love of the Son. And we won't take the time to read all these verses. Let me read them to you. In Matthew 17 verse 5, you remember on the top of Mount Hermon, here we are. The transfiguration has taken place and what a moment in history that would be. I think apart from Calvary, although I wouldn't want to be there on site, I think it's Mount Hermon where I would choose. I want to be on the mount where Christ is transfigured. And here on this mountain, he's transfigured before the Moses and Elijah. And then when Peter starts talking, typical, when Peter starts talking, God, the father from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My beloved son. You say, Christ by highest heaven adored, adored first and foremost by his Father. And then in John 3.35, Jesus said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In John 5.20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Matthew 12.18, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved one with whom my soul is well pleased. And wow, what a thought. Because the father's soul was well pleased with the son, he is able to be well pleased with me because I'm no longer in my sin, but in his son. The favor of the almighty God that was placed upon his son is mine because I am in Christ. Wow, what a precious thought. That was free. That wasn't even in the notes. It is clear to me from these texts and from so many others that the father loves the son with the perfect love. And he is well pleased with his obedience and his submission in coming to earth to save the lost. But then secondly, not just the father's love for the son. But the darling of heaven is adored and worshipped by the angelic realm. We've already seen this in the announcement of the angels, but very quickly in closing, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I know I say this all the time, but this is a glorious passage of scripture. And I know every time we turn somewhere else I say that, but this is truly a glorious passage of scripture. In Hebrews chapter 1, I will not labor long here, but let me read verse 1. Of all of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, and you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? One more place to turn, if you would, please, to Revelation chapter 5. And with this text, we will close. How do the heavenly beings, how do the angelic realm, how does the multitude and the host in heaven respond to this Jesus? Well, let's look to the future. Chapter 5 of Revelation and verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within... And on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep, John writes loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. And honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We could look all over the scripture to see how the angelic host. Worship and adore the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but we won't. I want to ask us a question as we close. If the heavenly realm, if all nature sings, if the angels in unison proclaim the glory of God, what do I do? Where is my heart? What is upon my lips at this time? Do I say with universal nature and the triumph of the skies, Christ the Lord is born today and he is by highest heaven adored, but not just in heaven, also within my heart today is Christ the Lord adored by us. The eternal God who robed himself in humanity and died for me. Lord, we thank you for the words that Wesley has penned. We're thankful even more for the words that the Holy Spirit has put before us in the pages of scripture. We're thankful for uh, men of great skill and ability to construct theological Songs such as this that speak such truth and honour and glory. And it's our privilege to be able to, with saints of many years, sing this song. Lord, may it have greater meaning to us. May it enter into our heart and may we be ever so grateful and ever so thankful for all that we've seen here today, for all that we will see next time we're together, if the Lord should tarry. Thank you for this time. May we worship you Still and continually, even now, as we sing our last song, Fellowship Around Some Food, we pray you'd be glorified in this time, in this season, in our life, in our family, in our homes, and Lord, in your church. In Jesus' name, amen.